Hello, I'm Jackie Mignot. And I'm Zach Robichaud. You're listening to A Podcast Made Flesh. Conversations about an embodied faith. We're coming to you from Treaty 7 territory, talking with all sorts of people about the incarnation. We're not reporters or experts, but we are questioners, and we are on a quest to have a conversation about the central Christian belief that God became flesh. Trauma is never just one thing. There's this intersectionality of trauma. And so the one trauma actually compounds. So the traumatic experience might be an assault, but then you have that traumatic event with your relationship to your faith or your family who didn't believe you, your faith that told you that all things work together for good. Um, You know, there's multiple ruptures. Jesus met people where they were at within their pain, and he understood that pain. And the idea of just asking for forgiveness and moving away, I never got that from reading the Bible. It is different than a consequence, a loving consequence that says, hey, that was not okay. Welcome, Podcast Main Flesh listeners. We have a treat for you today. We have two guests. Uh, Dr. Christina Conroy and Agnes Chen, and they're both here to talk to us about trauma. And this is one of those words that has made its way kind of into the forefront of some mainstream conversations um, about health and mental health and trauma informed might be a phrase you've heard often, but we wanted to have a conversation about um, what trauma is and what trauma resilience looks like because uh, as you start to learn about trauma and and what that how that manifests in someone's life you start to see how embodied it is and how embodied the healing from it it, it is so we get into um, definitions and a little bit about why each of these uh, women might be good uh, conversation partners so you'll find one is um, an academic and works in that sphere and teaching around trauma and especially trauma and faith, trauma and theology. Um, and then one of these women works on the ground with people um, in our very own city doing that community work. So we'll let you listen and, and see who is who and you can pick up the conversation about this a really important thing. Yeah. We recorded this conversation shortly after the, just days after the discovery mm-hmm. of the right. mass grave uh, in Kamloops, uh, unmarked grave of 215 Indigenous children. And mm-hmm. so that also informed how um, our conversation went. That view of there are a lot of people with a lot of trauma that's been, um, that they've experienced. And so then how do we then live together? and recognize the need for healing and yeah, what our role is in that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciated their approach of mm-hmm. not trying to fix a problem, but right. that we were, you know, this is a journey that people will tend to have to live with trauma for the rest of their life. So then how do we just, how do we live together? And that, that big question yeah. just persists. We hope this is a beneficial conversation for you where you're at. To 
So I'm Agnes. Um, I am a registered nurse. I currently work at COPS. I'm actually on maternity leave though. Um, and I dabble in a few other things, um, the Trauma-Informed Care Collective here in Alberta. Um, and I founded Starlings Community. So that's sort of my, my passion project, my heart's work, as I like to call it. And so really that it's a not-for-profit that really our mission is to co-create a community that can support the mental wellness, resilience, and healing of children who have been impacted by parents' addiction. And within that is also supporting the parents who have the addiction. Mm-hmm. So that is my heart's work. And yeah, I'm just really grateful to be here. So thank you. I am Christina Conroy. I'm an assistant professor of Christian theology at Ambrose University. And thank you to Jackie and Zach for having me here. And I'm really happy, Agnes, to um, meet you and especially to meet a practitioner in the area of trauma. Um, I My primary area of research within Christian theology is um, the church's relationship to residential schools. Mm-hmm. So I have uh, particular expertise in the um, residential school history. However, um, prior to my study of this, I worked with a theologian um, whose primary area of research was at the time, uh, the new field at the time of trauma theory and how that impacted Christian theology. Mm-hmm. And so I carried over a lot of the questions from her and from other colleagues in that field um, into my own theological teaching and um, allowed it to shape some of the questions that I take into my look at the church's relationship with residential schools as well. Wow. Well, thanks for both of you being here. I, one of the reasons we wanted to have both of you on the same in the same episode is to get the um, the two sides of of the the discussion in terms of what does a faithful incarnated faith say about um, or have to say, or how, how can it learn from trauma and the, the research around trauma that is kind of starting to emerge and get more in the public um, dialogue area. And so having someone who's thinking about that in relationship to, to Christian theology, and then having someone who is thinking about that in, and in practice and in the shaping of communities. And we thought that might be a really good chance to um, kind of have some good back and forth. Um, I was wondering, could we, I want to get into like definitions of some of these words in a second, but I do want to hear, and maybe it it will lead into it and we'll get a better understanding of what trauma and trauma-informed care and trauma-informed practice and trauma-informed maybe theology have to do with each other but could you tell a little bit about why um for you personally if if you and you can go as deep and as personal as you want but why for you this is an important thing yeah thank you for that uh so trauma-informed work and trauma-informed care you know um it sort of it it intersects of course with the work that I'm doing um I grew up in a home where uh, my parents struggled with their substance use, so that that's all my memories, all the sadness, grief, and everything that sort of, you know, happens in a space when you have unhealed childhood trauma and substance use in an environment. So a lot of, you know, the beliefs that I have and how I approach trauma-informed care um, definitions and, you know, tech, you know, terminology and science and statistics aside, 
comes from my own personal experience of recognizing um, the help that we needed, the support that we needed, and this grief that I felt growing up, the shame, you know, the sadness, the anger, um, and recognizing sort of being stuck in this place, um, in this home where I knew we weren't bad people, we just need a bit of help, and recognizing that that help didn't exist. So before I even could put into words, what is trauma? What is trauma-informed care? Truthfully, I even to this day hesitate to say that what I experienced was trauma um, because that has such a stigma attached to it. And you always think of people who live across an ocean who have experienced something worse. Um, but, you know, it really, the journey kind of took me as a registered nurse. I was working um, in intensive care units and, you know, journeying alongside other individuals who were overdosing, who were coming in with esophageal bleeds from drinking too much and recognizing sort of that, just that chokehold that stigma had, not only um, in our own lives, how we internalized it, um, but within our healthcare system and within individual beliefs and how those beliefs were so powerful and, and really limited people from reaching their capacity. And so it was sort of this crossroads that I came to, um, you know, of, I know I've talked to Jackie about this of being really angry, um, but also being really hopeful knowing, you know, there were people in my life who supported me, even if they didn't know what was going on. I know that that contributed to who I am today um, in, in a huge capacity that I'm not broken, that, you know, what is this word resilience? I, you know, I didn't know I was resilient, but I knew that the people in my life were surely resilient. The patients that I was were walking alongside, if we want to talk about resilience, we just have to listen to a few of these stories to recognize, holy smokes, the, how people adapt their environment to get through it. Like that's what we have to hold that and honor that and respect that. And so really, um, that journey from my childhood to where I am today, it's still a learning process, um, but that's sort of, you know, everything that I bring or I understand about trauma without getting into the details of this, the terminology. Yeah, yeah. You, I just want to clarify and maybe ask a little bit of a follow-up. Uh, you mentioned, like, there really wasn't help available necessarily looking around, but then there, there must have been some people who kind of walked alongside or helped you work through that. Can you speak a little bit to those who kind of helped you maybe not recover, but at least process or support when you needed it most? Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. You know, um, it's so interesting how our brains work and the things that we remember. And, you know, one of my earliest memories, I had a teacher, I was in grade four and, um, and I remember, you know, as a grade four, it was an open house and we were running around outside playing and we came inside and um, the kids, we were running in inside of the doors and she came up to me and she got down to my level and eye to eye, she had her hand on my elbow and she said, were you smoking? And it wasn't this disciplinary, were you smoking? It wasn't this, you know, trying to scold me. It was this deep sense of concern for me. And I wasn't smoking. <laughs> I grew up in a home where there was lots of smoking going on. So I'm sure I smelled like it. But I felt this mm. sense of, you know, for her to get down to my level, to ask me and to genuine, genuinely, I felt that inside of me. And that was me in grade four. And I remember that to this day. You know, I had people like that in my life. And I was so fortunate. I was always offered positions, you know, of leadership, 
um, you know, I was on patrol team and they asked me to be the, the team lead. And I always never wanted to do these things. So I didn't one. I always thought I'm going to let you down and I'm not going to be able to go to early meetings or, you know, places on the weekend. It just wasn't a part of it, but you know, I had um, friends, parents who were always so welcoming of me and just saw something in me, even like looking back, I did not believe in myself at all in any capacity. I mean, I think we all probably struggle with that to some degree, but I, I know, and I recognize those people who genuinely saw something in me Mm -hmm. and that motivated me to try harder. Even if I, I, you know, even if I had a fake smile on a lot of the time, it was a motivation. It was something that said, Hey, they believe in you. So just try a little bit, just try a little bit. And so that was really powerful for me. Mm. Thanks, Agnes. Christina, what what, uh, drew you to uh, the study of trauma? Well, my, um, my interaction and my history with trauma studies is a, a little more serendipitous. Um, I went to, after a, a funny history um, where I needed to just carry on in graduate studies because I couldn't get a job, um, I went to Yale Divinity School to study with Serene Jones. And so if you've ever been a student, um, one of the s- strategies, and I tend to like this strategy, is you just take whatever the teacher that you like is teaching. Um, and Serene Jones at the time um, was one of the foremost and early speakers into um, the relationship, the potential relationship between this emerging field of trauma theory and Christian theology. Um, she later, she came out with a book called Trauma and Grace. Um, and, and one of her students, Shelley Rambo, has, um, who I'm in dialogue with to this day, has um, carried on in the vein that Shelley, that Serene Jones started and um, has written a number of books, has continued to work in this field at Boston University of, of Trauma and Theology, um, working now primarily with um, chaplains and in the area of uh, moral injury. And um, she has kept me um, she helped me design my trauma and theology class for Ambrose University and has, has kept encouraging me to make the connections between the residential school history, which, of course, has a uniquely Canadian um, contribution to the field um, in trauma. Um, so when I was at Yale, it was really interesting because Yale houses the Fortunoff Holocaust archives. And uh, I know you haven't asked this yet, yet, but one of the origins of trauma theory, it's a little bit different for Trauma theory is a little bit broader than those like Agnes who are practitioners because it's a really interdisciplinary field. Um, It started um, in some senses with military veterans um, going back to Sigmund Freud, where he recognized the phenomenon that what was in the past, um, the experiences of war for soldiers actually didn't remain in the past. So they continued in their um, time after the war to experience nightmares, to experience flashbacks, and to have it impact their present. So there was something for Freud in the past that didn't remain in the past that that leaked um, and shaped the present reality. And this was, um, of course, as time goes on, um, the military military phenomenon gets funding um, and gets attention. And so this is how there was other 
experiences of documented trauma, but this was the area that actually kind of gained a foothold um, for trauma theorists to study and to have data to work with. Um, then in 1992, um, a, a woman, um, an academic named Judith Herman, um, charted the relationship between the similarities between um, military veterans um, and PTSD, which was a fairly new um, category and diagnosis. The similarities between a military veterans' experience of PTSD and sexual abuse survivors, um, and wrote on this phenomenon. Um, then it was um, places like this Fortunov Holocaust Archive, which um, housed not only first-person testimony witness to the Holocaust, but began um, conversation with second-generation Holocaust survivors, um, so the, the children and then grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, to see and chart that um, trauma actually had an impact beyond the initial event. Um, and so it was going into Holocaust archives for the first time that um, awakened me to this world of um, trauma. And for Christian theology, um, and, and Serene Jones asked these questions, Shelley Rambo asked these questions, but we have, um, we have this narrative that redemption, sometimes we have this narrative that redemption fixes things. Um, and the problem is, is that the reality of trauma, people don't get fixed. Like this isn't, this actually isn't um, the mode in which the human experience um, um, reflects the traumatic experience. And so for, for a Christian theologian such as myself, we're faced with this dilemma of does the Christian story just run a parallel but completely separate track from the experience of the trauma? Or is there a way that trauma as a lens into Christian theology actually can allow a conversation for our narrative to, to speak to the reality of trauma and for trauma to give us a, a way to look at the Christian experience? Otherwise, we're, we are talking about things that are unrelated to people's experiences with trauma. And so it's quite funny because when I teach trauma and theology, um, my students actually want Agnes to be the teacher. <laughs> they think they're walking into a class that is a, a therapeutic, helpful class. Um, and I acknowledge I, I am not a healer in this way. This is where I pass the baton to people like Agnes, people whose feet is on the ground, working, working with real life people to lead the way forward. However, I do think that um, the Christian imagination needs to be reshaped by the phenomenon of trauma and the stories that we tell shape people's lives, shape how they embody their lives. And if we can speak about redemption in ways that um, isn't just this fixed, isn't just getting over it, isn't just the erasure of the past, isn't just victory, um, we have... Um, some ground, some hopeful ground to move forward, acknowledging the human experience and the reaction of our bodies to the experience of trauma. Um, so that's, that's how I got started. And that's why I've continued. And of course, um, we've heard from survivors and intergenerational survivors of, of residential schools that um, the phrase getting over it um, is, is not a phrase that's a kind of cruel 
phrase that's not in, in any way acknowledging either people's lived experience or as I've come to learn the epigenetic um, effect that trauma has on brain and the reaction of our bodies to these experiences. Um, so those are the kinds of things I take into the classroom um, as questions for Christian theology. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I don't have the answer to how, um, how, how, how this helps people. That's, that's where Agnes and I, um, this is where I, you know, they, I'm so thankful for people like Agnes and the insights that they have for how, um, uh, people actually move forward in this reality. Now you said, you said a word epigenetics that deserves, uh, a little bit a little bit of defining i know this is a new field in science i mean new i mean science is old epigenetics is new uh, can you unpack just what that means just a little bit before we continue on sure and for any listeners i'm not a scientist so this is um uh, subject to scrutiny um so epigenetics i'm familiar originally with um again from american research uh, epigenetic research came out of these second generation um, Holocaust survivor research on, on brains. And the idea that um, studying, studying the brain, um, her name is slipping my mind, but there's a, a researcher that's very famous for this in, in the U.S. starting this conversation, that um, it, that experiences that we have, including traumatic experiences, um, actually right on top of our DNA. They don't change your DNA, um, but they, they write on top of it and um, encode changes that can actually be passed on from generation to generation. Um, and this is the phenomenon of epigenetics. They found this in Holocaust survivors and Holocaust survivor um, 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 children and grandchildren. Now, what's a very fun part of my job at Ambrose is I've been able to, in the Canadian context, context work with the um, neuroscience department at the University of Lethbridge. Here in Alberta, we have one of the primary um, sites for neuroscience research in the world. And it's just been really wonderful to work with people in the area of epigenetics, including Dr. Robert Sutherland, Dr. Robin Gibb. And they have actually come into my trauma classes and talked about um, what happens um, and related specifically to the history of residential schools to people who've experienced, especially children, there's at different ages where we're susceptible, um, we're kind of at a, a tipping point um, in, our, in our brains and in our body's formation as to whether we we build a kind of bank of resilience or whether we deplete the resources that are available for us to, um, to move, to move on. And so how they've studied the brain, again, it is, you're right, Zach, it's a real, it's a new field, um, in some ways, um, it's not a new field conceptually, but the kind of research they're doing is unfolding new data all the time. Um, and so, Long story short, when one of the most common refrains I hear is, why don't people just get over it? Mm -hmm. And epigenetics takes, literally tells us that's not biologically true. Like we don't. Um, it's just not possible. It's, 
It's, um, well, people react differently and integrate trauma differently. And so okay. some people can go through the same traumatic experience and they integrate, they seem to integrate the experience differently in their bodies. Um, mm. And some people don't. And it's not a, a matter of moral fortitude. It's not a matter of virtue. This is just a, a phenomenon that happens. Um, some people, and Agnes, this might resonate with your own experience. Some people have people that come alongside resources that are made available to them. And that triggers a, a kind of integration of the material. But for some people, the integration will never, the integration of the traumatic event will never, um, it will never be integrated. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, um, and that is, that's not a moral category. That's just a biological category. Mm. Um, and, um, and something that theology needs to have as, uh, as, a, as a piece that we are thinking about when we talk about these categories of hope, um, of life, of the common good, of compassion, you know, of resilience, of, of healing, um, so that we're not you know, alienating any particular experience from that. Yeah, so that there has to be a good response from the church or from pastors or from those practitioners. Like that, that response has to come from a good place and an informed place rather yeah. than just some yeah. petty response like, why don't you just get over it? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah. I want to... Ask a sorry. I feel like I got to get in there before Zach does this. We sometimes compete over who gets to ask the next. It's question. funny. We were all unmuted at one point. We're all like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I, I just thought I would, if it's helpful for some people to, you know, understand the way epigenetics works. If we think of, um, if we think of our genes as the blueprint you get for a house when someone's going to build a house, and then you think of the construction workers who are going to put the house, you know, build, actually build it. That's epigenetics. So. Mm -hmm how our genes are expressed are very different than what lays out. So somebody, you know, I, you know, in my family, I can say, oh, depression is in my, you know, it's genetic, but it just because something is genetic doesn't mean you're, you're destined for that because our experiences impact so much of what genes are expressed and what genes come out um, in, in us. So I just wanted to add that because that helps me to understand epigenetics and the science of epigenetics. I, it strikes me that the, I don't want to say the concept of trauma, but understanding it is such an embodied thing. And I think that's what, um, I think that's where sometimes Christians don't know what to do with it because we have not done embodiment well. We have not understood like, well, it's not just a mind over matter. It's not just having enough faith. And so I'd love to talk about, I mean, Christina, you were really describing, sorry, I I cut myself off there. I'd like to talk about the body stuff and about how it plays out. I don't know if there's more we could say, Christina, I was going to say you, you did a really good job of kind of explaining some of the, um, how it's connected in our brains. And there's, I'm trying to find my right words here, but Jackie, I don't know if this will help, but you know, yeah. Christina, you, I, I, if it's okay, I'd love to say, you know, thank you for, for the kind words you said about, you know, me, you know, I, you know, the, the idea of being a healer and not a healer. And, you know, for me, when I think of trauma and trauma informed care specifically, you know, my hope is that we can all recognize the power that we hold in somebody's life and in, in, in being that safe presence so that they can heal. When we think of trauma, when I say, 
trauma-informed care, you know, to understand what trauma-informed care is, we have to understand what trauma is. Mm-hmm. Trauma isn't the experience. It's what happens inside of us. And it's what happens to our stress response when we are bombarded and overwhelmed with something that threatens our life, whether that's emotionally or physically. And to really understand that, we have to understand our own stress response. And I think all of us can really relate to what it feels like to be so angry or so sad and and our capacity to think through things and rationalize or to be, you know, calm and collected with our kids and whatnot. And it's really, for me, it's digging deep and understanding, knowing what that feels like in me. And then Mm -hmm. on top of it, recognizing, okay, you know, I know that this exists in my body, how difficult it is for me. So then if we take it one step further and can understand, as Christina mentioned, you know, there are these sensitive periods in our development and early childhood is one of those big ones. And so when our brain is, you know, those neurons are are firing and we have more than we need of the synapses that are, that are there, it's recognizing, okay, well, if somebody needs a little bit more time, they need that reminder over and over and over again, that the world is a safe place. When someone has experienced that threat over and over and over again, their body, we adapt. Our body is so amazing. I think it's just the most, one of the most beautiful parts of our body. We adapt to our environment. And as babies, even in utero, our body is prepping us to say, to know, Hey, what do I need? And what don't I need to exist in this world? And when we have only known the world as a place that's not safe, Mm. and that's what we're going to expect. That's what our body is going to prime us for. Mm. And so, Back to Christina, when you said, you know, you're not a healer and you have this other capacity, you know, I, I would argue that you are a healer. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I think, the beauty that lies in each of us and the role we play in each of our lives is that trauma-informed care is really mm-hmm. reflecting back and recognizing our own responses to the things in our life and why that exists. And then really taking that and using that information to really understand and, and, and that's where empathy comes in, right? We can't, we have to use that knowledge, our own experience um, to move forward. I kind of went on a tangent there, but I wanted to, I really wanted to um, throw that in. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about body stuff? Like how, how trauma does manifest in the body? I don't know. Is that the right question? I don't even know if that's the right question. And, and I will, like Christina said, you know, there's a, I will put a disclaimer that, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, a resilience researcher or a trauma expert, but, you know, when, you know, when I try to explain trauma, um, how trauma impacts a body and when we think about the way our brain develops. So, you know, the brain has three main parts. So it, do you want me to get into this? Yeah. <laughs> right. The brain has the three main parts. We have our brain stem, we have our midbrain, and then we have the prefrontal cortex. And that's the order that our brain develops in. Um, our brain stem, which is our survival brain, our heart rate, blood pressure, our temperature, all the things we need to survive, to come out of the womb and be able to live. Um, we need our heart to beat. We need our temperature regulated. So that's already developed when we come out to its full capacity. Um, so if a mom is experiencing a lot of stress or herself has unhealed trauma, um, that increase in cortisol, that stress response, we can say kind of gets passed down because that, again, that baby body is prepping for its environment. And if mom is stressed, then my environment is going to be stressful. And when we are in danger, 
We don't need to figure out what we're going to have for dinner or lunch. We just need to get our need met. So our brainstem is the first thing to develop. Then we have our midbrain and they call that the emotional brain. So that's kind of the, the alarm. Um, there's different pieces in there, but the amygdala is what most people know. And that's sort of um, the good experiences and the bad. It, it, it allows us like a smoke detector to say, hey, this is danger. We got to move. So that develops. And I, and I believe that that one is between the age of zero to two. Um, um, how it develops. So then the last thing that really comes online, or it comes online, I apologize, between zero to two. And then the last thing to even come online, so it's not even like ready yet, it's still developing, it's still, you know, building those synapses there, is the prefrontal cortex, which is our rational brain. Um, that's what, you know, sets up sets us apart from other mammals. It's what allows us to rationalize things, to understand consequences, to empathize, to understand how somebody else is feeling and what they're experiencing. So the prefrontal cortex, um, that doesn't even come online until about the, you know, between, I think it's five and seven, and it continues to develop until we're 25. And, you know, our, our brain is continuously rewiring. But the important thing about all of that is to recognize that if a child has a stressful environment, physically, emotionally stressful, then their brain, that prefrontal cortex, they're not even getting an opportunity. That foundation isn't going to be sturdy to allow that to get on. And I always think about, you know, I, I take the same route to drive my kids to school. If I take a different route, it's going to take me a lot longer to get there. And so when the brain has been wired a certain way, it's going to take a lot longer to rewire it. Um, and, and I don't know if it's helpful because we're not having diagrams here, but when we experience stress, what happens is our, 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 you know, we get a stress signal. I'm going to get booted out of my community or I'm hungry or I'm threatened. I'm going to die. My environment's physically telling me this. Our prefrontal cortex goes offline because we don't need it. We don't need to think about, oh, how do I get out of here? You know, there's a bear in my environment. Our body just says you need, you need to survive. And so that prefrontal cortex, it disengages because we don't need it. And so if that continues to happen, you're not using it. You're not strengthening those synapses that are in that environment. And so, you know, as Christina mentioned, we say, you know, just get over it or whatnot, right? When are, we haven't been given that opportunity to strengthen those parts of our brain that actually allows us to uh, be able to think rationally, to sit in a classroom and listen and learn when we continuously think our environment is unsafe and that prefrontal cortex is continuously going offline, we're expecting, you know, a child who then becomes, you know, 18 and we're like, well, you got to figure this out. Like, sorry. <laughs> right. So in any case, that's how, you know, um, that's sort of the, the rational and irrational part of trauma. And then in terms of holding it in our body, you know, um, when we are threatened, if I asked each of us to sit and think, you know, um, of an experience that you felt really afraid or really sad and, and your capacity, you know, what, what happened to your body in that moment? Um, when your body experiences a threat, you know, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our body wants to run. We have, you know, or, or we might check out for, you know, I was somebody who really easily checked out. We zone out. Right. And so that is a body response. It's not a rational response. I was going to ask, is that the, like the fight, flight or freeze response yeah. to things? Yeah. Yeah. Like fight, flight, freeze. Yeah. Or collapse is, is uh, the other one where body is just like, no, I have no option. I'm stuck between 
a cliff and a wall. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious if there's, uh, okay, so there's a, you know, the rational response, which may or may not be, uh, and then there's a physical response. Is there such a thing as a faith response? Like, is there, I, I'm just curious, I have no idea. And I'm not going to go do a PhD on this one, but um, is there, is there such a thing? Like, has that ever been discussed? Like the, dear God, help me. Maybe that's a faith response. You know, the no atheists and foxholes kind of idea, but. <laughs> I, Christina, you might be an expert. You know, the only, the only thing that I can add to that, maybe that statement is, um, you know, when we're going through a hard time, that's whatever supports us in that moment that that whatever gives us that strength to calm down our stress response mm. like okay. when you you know i have a 10 month old so when my baby is screaming and you pick her up and she melts in your arms mm. you know that stress response has been calm that sense right. of safety has returned um so that idea of of having faith and hope in something bigger and greater than you that mm. exists that can be that sense of safety. But Christina, you might have a more theological perspective on this than, than me. Sure. I, well, yeah. sure, I can, oh, I can say uh, a few things. Um, yeah, totally. the, the trauma study side, um, in, in a sense, is a, is a bigger picture kind of view of this. There's, of course, a sense that pain and suffering and loss are a part of the shared human experience. But what defines trauma is um, many of people are, are able to integrate the, the pain and suffering and loss they experience. But trauma is the phenomenon of when that integration gets stuck um, <clears throat> and it doesn't integrate for certain people. And um, it gets stuck primarily in, in certain ways. Some of the classic symptoms that we talk about in trauma theory are um, ruptured memory so there's a kind of um, um, lapses in um, past and present and the timeline of memory are some gaps. Some things are completely forgotten. Um, some things are dropped. And, and the other side of the coin is that um, right in the traumatic moment, some things are kind of uh, seared permanently with impeccable detail in, into the memory. So there, there are these kind of ruptures in memory that occur. There's also the inability to narrate the experience. Um, so if you think of our demand in this kind of psychological culture that we have, this talk therapy of tell me what you're feeling, tell me right now and I'll assess whether it's true. The combination of a ruptured memory and an inability to narrate the experience um, doesn't bode well for how we we value um, people who are going through trauma. And then, of course, um, for people experiencing trauma, the shattering of assumptions, um, everything that they knew about the world and how the world was supposed to unfold. I, I often think of it like a, a, a wheel on a bike that's rolling as the way you expect it, and then a cog just gets stuck in the wheel. Um, and everything lurches to a halt. This wasn't supposed to happen. It kind of, it kind of shatters everything they thought they knew was true. And um, the assumptions, even Christian assumptions, um, and the relationships that were foundational in life, those, those kinds of things, the things that sustained life in that way, those kinds of things can get locked up. 
Um, what so, is so if someone if someone believes that you know, well, I said my prayer this morning, God's with me, and then this horrible thing happens. Yeah, I mean, that there's a I mean there's a rupture there. There's a stick in the in the spokes. Or sure. when we tell people all things work together with good, uh, all yeah. things work together for good. That and it doesn't happen for something. Yeah. Someone in particular that is. Um, that is another layer of trauma. One of the, one of the trauma mm. theorists early on, her name was Maria Root. One of the things that she studied in the phenomenon of trauma is that trauma is never just one thing. There's this intersectionality of trauma. And so the one trauma actually compounds. So the traumatic experience might be an assault, but then you have that traumatic event with your relationship to your faith or your family who didn't believe you, your faith that told you that all things work together for good, um, you know, there's multiple ruptures. Um, I study this because in a sense, one of the big categories for Christian theology is called theological anthropology. And that's a fancy way of saying, what does it mean to be human? And we have all of these theories in Christian theology that you're usually reduced to, you're depraved, you're fallen, <laughs> you know, you're sinful. And one of the, 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 the deep um, indictments of trauma is how radically vulnerable for however it was that we're created, how radically vulnerable we are to the world um, as humans in these bodies. Um, and the, what people like Agnes have taught us working with um, real folks working with trauma is that just as much as trauma is lodged in the body um, so that it has a very physical effect the, the modalities of, of, of movement, of change, of hope also occur in the body. Um, and so circling back around to an earlier question, um, one of that you asked, Zach, um, one of the relationships for, for therapists have um, been in community, being in a relationship with a trustful person, Agnes, you talked about your teacher, just having someone who is walking with you on a journey. The community aspect can, seems to be um, incredibly important um, uh, for a, uh, the trauma experience. And I would say for some people, depending on your religious tradition, um, Christianity does provide that kind of way of experiencing God for some people of sometimes it can be a really remote judgmental God, but other times there can be a sense of I'm not in this alone. I, I can pray. I do feel this, this, this presence of someone who loves me and cares for me. So there can be um, resources for people um, in their faith when it comes to the body as well. But um, I think Jackie, you mentioned this, we have, for years, we have just not done well in Christianity. We're, we're, you know, we have these creeds, we believe, we believe, we believe. Um, and we hardly know what to do with this vul radically vulnerable, um, wonderfully responsive um, body that we have. Yeah the experience of people responding to hurt bodies, like the, the stuff that gets passed down. Um, and it's all, it's all moralized, right? It's, it's all, is that the right word about, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like our behavior has become so moralized 
that, and it, or maybe it's stigmatized is the, is the, what Agnes would, would call it. Cause we, we don't recognize the vulnerable, um, belovedness of someone who's in that space. We say, oh, they're acting this way and it's sinful or I'm, oh, I'm not explaining well, it. You're, how you're I reminding me, you're reminding me of our conversation with Brad Jerzak where he defined sin, right? It, it's like, it's an illness that needs to be treated and you know or you know rather than something that needs to be punished and i think the church's response has typically been something more along this along the lines of you just need to confess and then god can forgive it or you're going to be punished or something like it's it's just a it's a bad approach to um bad behavior and bad in quotes i mean it's a yeah, it's not a very good response when we don't really even define sin in a good way, right? Yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I just I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I know you've had some, like, have been in the church and out of the church because of people's response to things. I, do you want to speak to that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, just listening to how like. Um, how you're trying to frame this, Jackie? I mm. and I always, you know, I always say to, I always say to Jack, I'm a bad Christian. So I'll, uh, I'll preface that with this. But you know, it's interesting. So who am I? <laughs> um, you know, for me, um, when I, you know, even just thinking of Jesus on the cross, right? He wasn't that to feel, to understand and feel what it's like to be human. Right. And, and, and I, I can't speak on what sin is and, and, and the morality around it, but you know, um, when I read the Bible, um, and I say it in past tense, <laughs> but when I did, you know, Jesus met people where they were at within their pain and he understood that pain. And the idea of just asking for forgiveness and moving away, I never got that from reading the Bible. I never, I never understood where that came from. And sort of like a a parent, you know, when my child does something that is wrong, you know, wrong, wrong, wrong. And and I'm a parent and I have done some wrong, wrong, wrong things. You know, I expect that there's going to be a consequence for my action. But when I feel that I've been physically removed and I no longer belong in that space, It is different. It is different than a consequence, a loving consequence that says, hey, that was not okay. But yet, you know, when we look at our justice system, when we look at individuals who do things that we believe are morally wrong, like addictions, like using substances, without understanding the deep rootedness of where that stems from, without recognizing the humanness in all of that, you know, I just find that all very interesting that we would say, no, you're sinning. So you're removed when I never got the sense from the Bible when I read it. And I understand that there are consequences to our actions and there should be, of course, because we have to learn, but we need that in a safe space where we know that emotionally and physically you love me and you want me here. And you, you see me as somebody and something because we all need that. Amen. (laughs) Go ahead, Christina. One of the, gifts that Serene Jones brought to the conversation was 
identifying the elephant in the room for Christianity in that at the center of our faith is a traumatic event. What does it mean that for Christianity, Christianity has its origins in a trauma, that Jesus was crucified, his followers were, were completely um, gutted by this event, and that this small kind of wily group of, you know, persecuted believers um, started out from, from nothing, you know, piecing together their experience of this. Um, Shelley Rambo has um, expanded the conversation to even talk about the resurrection um, of Jesus, this core element of the Christian faith that, you know, Jesus returns with the wounds in his hand. The marks of, of this trauma are not healed in this kind of view of resurrection and, re and redemption. They're still present. Um, and one of the, and, and so people like Serene and um, Shelley have talked about how Christian theology has been very inadequate in their theologies of suffering. Um, and this sense, and I would, I would say um, that the Christian view of sin is more like a, a deep wound that needs to be healing. Something has been broken, something that has been separated. And the healing, you know, the redemption is the bringing together of things that weren't meant to be separated, or at least the journey towards that. Um, and so taking that, taking that aspect, you know, of, of morality out of it, if we switch that view, if we embrace that view for many people, you know, because one of the phenomenons, um, Zach, I think that you mentioned this and Agnes too, is that sin in the past has always been something that we have done on purpose and it's deserving of punishment. But the phenomenon of trauma reminds us that's, a, that's only one side of the coin. Um, that the, lots of people, this is not their fault. This is something that they, they're the recipients of harm. Um, and they may go on to harm as a result of this, but this begins as something that they, they are the recipients of, not something that they are deserving punishment. You can see how this plays out in our response historically to sexual assault, where our default mode, because of Christian theology, has been, well, what did she do? assuming it was uh, a female, what, you know, to deserve this. Um, so those kinds of, Christ the ways that this has shaped our Christian imagination has, has leaked into law, has leaked into the way that we view people. And so I wonder in the church, you know, if we embrace this idea of, of woundedness and we want to hang on to God's healing, can we... Would we be able to create a space like I can pitch in my church that we should pray, you know, like responding to the 215 bodies found in the Kamloops church. Um, and I understand this, but my my school would like to pray, have a prayer meeting about this, to offer our prayers, to offer lament. That's a very kind of classic Christian way of responding. But if we understand that we are if we take our theological anthropology seriously and we are these radically vulnerable bodies and that God loves us and desires um, this kind of healing, could we not also imagine that something like a prayer meeting could get funding, but something also like um, a yoga practice or a, a dance um, 
a dance hall where, where, where kids learn to dance. There's a wonderful documentary out there from the Adipakwazat First Nation, which has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. And the young people have taken up square dancing and they consider it um, a healing part of their youth culture. And I think, why do we not see that spiritually? Like, why, why do we just want to keep praying and not say, how do I give money to create a hall for them to continue square dancing? Um, because it's, it's, it's in moving our bodies that the kind of integration paths seem to um, find their way. Um, Agnes, you probably have stories about that and thoughts about that kind of thing too. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, Christina, thank you. That was just so, there's so much that I, I found so interesting. Um, again, just being somebody who, who grapples with, with faith, but, you know, um, holds on really dearly to that spiritual side because it was a huge part of my healing journey. Um, it was, it, you know, interesting just hearing you, you say, um, that idea of praying and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know this. And I actually, I asked this, you know, in the church is it, praying, um, you know, an, a verbal act versus a body act. Is that how it is seen, you know, as strictly as I am saying words to God and, and God is going to hear that, or is it an offering of myself and my words and my body and what I'm feeling? And am I feeling that offering in return in, in what I'm being given and what I'm feeling and what I'm needing you know when I like again I just I am sorry I'm like in, in mama bear mode here but you know when I when I understand people and relationships and and the connection and from me from a deeply rooted place what was so healing for me and what continues to be so healing for me again it's what does that presence tell me and so when I'm praying and and I'll share this and it feels really vulnerable to share and I've shared it with Jackie before you know some of my you know really darkest moments as a child um the, the washroom was my safe place and it was because I would sit on the floor and I would pray and I told God I had no idea that existed if they do exist if they didn't I didn't grow up in a in a home that practiced religion um and in deep sadness I would always feel this blanket this cloak come over me almost like a hug and I it sounds hoodoo voodoo-y and um and what what you know whatever it was it was but it was powerful and I felt that and it was in the middle of prayer and it wasn't my words and it wasn't something I heard. It was something I felt inside of me. And so that knowing that truth of what that felt like and listening and feeling and embracing that, you know, um, it's really powerful. And so I just listening to you speak and, and recognizing, you know, what the church might see praying as, it's so different than when what I experienced my prayer as, um, which was deeply meditative and healing um, and a full body experience and continues to be to this day. Thanks, Agnes. Yeah. That, that was vulnerable. I, I'm wondering, Agnes, could you share? Um, I mean, stories are important. Um, and you know, Christina, you brought up even, you know, the beginning of the Christian faith is, is a moment of trauma and we could go there and I was, it even dawned on me. Oh, and the first followers were then traumatized through martyrdom and watching their friends get killed and, you know, losing their friends because they had left their, their faith, whatever it was before. Um, so, I mean, 
Agnes, would you be able to share like a, not a case study, but, you know, a story that you've been involved with um, in the uh, Starlings community? Yeah, I guess, um, Zach, just to clarify, like just a story of, of healing of that, that experience of moving forward or just in general, you know, so. Yeah, what just, just, I would say just an, someone who's experienced trauma, who like what, what mm-hmm. what do you then surround them with? Like, I'm yeah. hearing words like p- power and vulnerable and time and no fix and like ah, that's that's tough. You can't impose any kind of thing on that. So, what do you do? Like, how do you become that warm blanket for someone? Yeah, um, Zach, thank you for asking that because that is Jackie's. I see Jackie laughing, but that is you know, that is my, truly my heart's work. And, um, you know, even with trauma-informed care, and it's such a buzzword right now, um, even, even in that information, it gets so miscued and misplaced because we, we say, okay, I have empathy and compassion for somebody who has an addiction. I have empathy and compassion for somebody who's in the prison system. But then when we see those big behaviors, that inability to cope with, with minor, you know, seemingly benign stress, all that goes out the window and no, not in my corner. You are not welcome here. Um, sorry. Right. That, that it, when it's inconvenient, when those emotions and feelings and experiences are inconvenient and they impose on our sense of safety, it's really hard to show that empathy and compassion. And, you know, I, you know, I, I'd love to say I could share one story, but it's every story. I mean, it's all of our stories of this idea of, oh, like how many of us feel safe to be angry the way we are angry at home with our kids sometimes and we explode. How many of us would do that out in public? We would never, we would, right, we would devastate us. And so, you know, you know, that brings another point of this idea of being vulnerable. And, and, and sometimes, you know, we often hear be more vulnerable out in public, and, you know, there are people being vulnerable every single day in my eyes, you know, somebody who's on the street looking down and has a sign that says, can I have change? I mean, if that's not vulnerable, you know, I remember the, I love Brene Brown and all her work with vulnerability, but when I first heard people start saying be vulnerable, I felt like it, we were getting punched in the face because people are being vulnerable every single day in front of us. And again, you know, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm, I want to, I want to think and, and, you know, the idea of, you know, sharing a story, but the, the truth is, Zach, for me, you know, when someone has experienced trauma, and I think we underestimate how much pain people can hold. And so we don't believe a lot of the stories. But when we go forward and we say, hey, but I was nice, I was compassionate, I showed kindness, and we think, hey, well, that didn't work. So you're obviously just a jerk. And that's too bad. Figure this out on your own it's not going to take one time. It's going to take me and you, and then you in your classroom, and then you at church reminding that person that, no, but you also belong here. I know you also belong here, where you're not just belonging in this one community over here, where they're going to serve you soup, and then you can go, you know, have your sign on the street again. It's no, we need to expand that vision of what community means, and where that person belongs. And Again, I would love to share just one story and I could share my own story. I could share my parents' story, but truthfully, it's all of our stories and just recognizing, you know, it, it moves beyond kindness and genuine kindness. You know, there's a, it, there's studies that say 93% of our communication is nonverbal. And for me personally, 
as a, a child, I would remember sitting in a class and I literally was scanning my environment. You're safe. You're not safe. Your shoulders are up. Your shoulders are down. You, I saw you scan. I, I, you know, police would come into our home when I was a child. I would see your eyes are scanning. You're looking at bottles of booze. You are looking at something else. Your body is telling me that I'm not good enough. You don't have to say anything. You can say, hi, my name is so-and-so. And you can try to tell me that you are a safe person by the words you're using. But my body is telling me otherwise because I am sensing it from everything else. I can have my eyes closed. And I would be able to know and feel in me that you're not, that's not genuine. And so it's going to take those repeated moments over and over and over again for that person to know and believe that you are safe, especially when they've experienced trauma and the world has over and over again told them that you're not safe. I had a patient one time when I walked in, um, um, it was on a mental health unit at the PLC. And, and he said, right. Like, you know, it was probably the second time I went into his room. Why are you being so nice to me? People are expecting you to not be nice to them. And when you are, what is your motivation? Why would you be like this? I don't deserve it. And so we have to work hard and it is, it isn't just kindness. It isn't just volunteering, you know, one weekend a month at a shelter or a not-for-profit it is day in and day out in the interactions we have at the grocery store with our own kids, with our own families, you know, with the mom that is struggling. Um, it is showing with our whole self communicating with our whole self that, Hey, you belong here over and over and over again. Okay. Ignis, you have to stop because that's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's exactly. a big ask. I mean, what, what it reminds me of, what it reminds me of is when I was studying community development was like when we're talking about poverty alleviation, like it's not a, there's no quick fix. There's no like, hey, I'm going to go volunteer for 10 days. Like it's, you move in and you live with the community. You become a part of the community and you share each other's story. and only then can really any kind of change, any kind of systemic change, and like I'm just hearing systems all over the place, like any kind of change requires relationship, genuine relationship, and a lot of time. And, and then it seems like, oh, if I'm going to engage with someone who's experienced trauma, I'm going to be traumatized. So I'm basically volunteering for trauma. Is that accurate? So I am going to challenge that a little bit because trauma isn't what happens to you. It's Good. what oh, yeah, that's right. of you. So mm. right, two people, even uh, siblings that grow up in the exact same home are, can experience their environment very differently based on the supports they had. And Christina mentioned this earlier, you know, if we have this scale and we have all these resources that have protected us within our circumstances, that's going to act as a buffer for us. So yeah, yes, you know, perhaps you might be, but that's not necessarily true. It's why some people might go like, you know, just be rattled after an encounter and somebody else will go, what is going on with you? Like nothing even happened. All they said was, all they said was, no, I, I don't like that. And you are acting like they told you you're the worst person in the world it's because that person probably feels like they're the worst person in the world. Already. Yeah. I, so, that, I, so as a follow-up question that I was going to ask Christina, uh, so in 
trauma theory and faith. Uh, if Jesus is experiences this violence on the cross and then hearing from Agnes, like it's how we then internalize it. I, I guess God is not traumatized. Like did God experience this violence? And then I get all of your, all of your reactions are muted. So this isn't fair. <laughs> like, yeah. Do you want to respond to that? Like, okay. Is, is God traumatized then? Um, does God have PTSD? Does God have PTSD? That sounds like the name of a really good article. I would read that. Um, well, that's a, I mean, this, this is a complicated Trinitarian question. Um, and I will, I will offload it onto a different question. I, I mean, I think what theology hangs on to is not an assessment of whether Jesus um, as God has PTSD, but are the, are the marks of suffering removed when we see Jesus again in this redeemed body? And the answer is no. And how does that shape our theology? Um, And even some of the questions moving into, um, you know, theology and conversation with the medical world, um, we have such a therapeutically driven culture that do we need to expose the assumptions even in the medical world that, um, that suffering needs to be eradicated at all costs, that that is number one, you know, uh, is that even possible? Um, is that desirable? Is that what people want? Is that actually a, a healthy choice? Um, right. we, we have tended to, for a long time, associate lack of suffering with some kind of ideal. Um, or, you know, how it reflects truth. We have a, a very strange relationship with truth in our culture, politically and legally, um, with rep- people's ruptured memories. Um, like I'm always fascinated that the four different gospels are slightly different from each other. Like we don't have these, you know, they're, they're these wonderful human texts of what was important to one person and relayed differently, um, to another. And when we assess people's accounts of their experience, either in court or in my case, in residential school testimony, do we assume that they have to be 100% chronologically accurate in order to be relaying a truth? Um, And so examining our relationship, like they actually are, even if they get some of the details wrong, what the neuroscientists will say is that they are still telling some kind of a truth. And are we willing to see the truth that these garbled stories sometimes are relaying. So to come back around to the 215 children found at the Kamloops residential school, for any of us who have heard residential school testimony, this is not a surprise. Um, The number is perhaps a surprise, but this is, these kinds of stories have been a part of residential school um, testimony for a long time. But until they're scientifically verified, we have a hard time as a culture reacting appropriately. Do you know what I mean? And maybe we can start to, to, uh, you know, to listen to people's stories and to read their suffering um, better and in advance without having to have everything 
all lined up and in place before we take it seriously. It's, it's a validation thing. Yeah. Right? Like we're, yeah. we're withholding our validation until the experts show up. And so like, some of the assumptions that I think for Christian, that even, you know, without being able to answer whether Jesus had PTSD, um, uh, whether or not some of it, it challenges some of the assumptions that we have about how we assess what's true, what's healing, you know, what's good for people in society. That Christina, what you were just saying about like, we need to, as people who follow this embodied faith really need to assess our relationship with truth and, and interrogate our culture a little bit. This, this, um, the linearness of our culture that says everything's going to get better as, and if it's not, we have no idea what to do with that. As opposed to, I will be with you in your suffering, in your whole life of trauma that I will still be with you and offer this belonging, even if you don't get better, right? Like, even if Mm -hmm. like that, Mm -hmm. this non-linear, non, not non-triumphal in that, um, there's not goodness that holds, you know, the beginning and end of our stories. Um, but I'm, I, I'm bucking against that as a pastor all the time. If I even want to, um, acknowledge grief or acknowledge, do you know what I mean? Like people, it's not comfortable to not live in that. Everything's just going to get better and better, 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 better. Truth is provable, provable, provable. Like we have no idea what to do with some of these unknowns and not, um, solvables. (laughs) Right. I think about, I'm going to mention this movie. This is totally random, but do you remember, in that movie, what dreams may come. Yes. Remember that. And okay. So first of all, first thing to know is I was in, I feel like I've actually mentioned this on a podcast before, but have have I, (laughs) which one was that? I don't remember. It hasn't come out yet. I would listen to it also. I I don't remember which one it was. Oh, it has come out already. Ah, that's hilarious. No, no. I think it was in your last one. No, I remember this conversation. Oh my gosh. Because, okay. So obviously this movie has, imprinted in my brain somehow because um you know i was told this movie was bad 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 because it did not show whatever we conceive of as heaven when i was growing up but the image of the husband who is robin williams and his wife is very depressed and in this very dark place and at the very end he chooses to stay with her in that space and in the storytelling boom, that's what releases her like that, that choosing to be within that space, not needing to fix. I really wonder what this is. I feel like there's a, something about our faith that needs to speak to this way better than we have, because it's not, it's not healing people like the Christian, not, I don't, I want to be careful with my words. But there's uh, way too many stories. They're resilient. People are resilient. Go but ahead, Jackie. Way too many stories of people being devastatingly damaged by just really shallow theology, like really shallow understandings of, of ultimate things and who we are as humans. And maybe that's it. A really shallow understanding of our theological anthropology that we are these incredibly beautifully made humans. It, I, 
like my blood pressure is rising because I, I, I hate, I hate seeing that in the church and I hate seeing that in Christian communities. I hate seeing when people don't know what to do with it because we haven't been taught how to hold each other's pain other than saying, just, just pray about it more. What? No, that's not, I mean, yes, sure. But anyways, I'm going to leave it there. I would love to ask a question, you know, when you're saying, you know, this, this word truth, um, and it's, I'm sort of having this, this moment of, you know, realization of why there's this head, you know, this, this force against each other, you know, whose truth, like, aren't we, aren't we like, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. If I see you suffering and in pain, that's your truth. You don't have to tell me anything. I can see you're struggling. Like who's, why are we looking to something or someone else to understand your truth? when I can sit here with you and talk to you. So I, I find that just so interesting, this idea of looking elsewhere. And, and we do that in society. We say, well, no, somebody else has experienced it worse, but here I am shouting and screaming and begging to be seen and heard and loved because pain mm. is pain and love is love and belonging is belonging and being ostracized, ostracized and pushed the corners. So this idea of truth, I just find that so interesting, Jackie, about, how this word truth is, um, and we're looking for truth for somebody, you know, are we, you know, what are we looking to, to, you know, to create these assumptions or judgments of what somebody needs or doesn't need or what their story is when they're the ones telling us, you know, through what they're experiencing and living and showing. Mm-hmm. And can I just make the connection to power there again? Like, it's someone's holding power and determining who's truth or what is truth. Like that, that's also like, that's a part of this perpetuation of trauma. I, I, I see, I mean, yeah. and we're not being vulnerable with our own truth, really. Like we're not. Yeah. Anyway. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to say something. I know I was going to say, I mean, if we looked at the, the, the principles of trauma-informed care, that power imbalance, looking at those power imbalances is exactly a part of that. So mm-hmm. if you, if we believe that we have power over somebody, that's not being tra- trauma-informed care is we are equals. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to, I'm not here to tell you how to do this. I'm not here to heal you. I'm here to journey alongside you. And in that, that's where the healing is. Brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. I, I, I Sorry, in my field, um, some of the the specific groups that are taking up this question of trauma are a real gift. Like if you think of liberation theologians and womanist theologians, disability theologians taking up the lens of trauma, um, because they have an eye um, to this the very power dynamics and social determinants of trauma, and they are considering how trauma affects whole communities. Um, not just individuals. And so that's a really rich conversation on the horizon. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and they bring part of Agnes, you're absolutely right about who's truth. But what's interesting is that most people think of that, they will um, criticize when they hear that said as being subjective. And they say that as a derogatory statement, how, you know, you're just making truth subjective but it isn't, it isn't actually that. It's actually um, assessing a broader array of data as to what is 
what plays into a person's truth, you know, what, what their genetic determinants are, what has happened. Um, and so it's subjective in the same that every person needs to be read uniquely, mm. but it's actually accessing a very rational <laughs> set of information um, in order to come to that conclusion. So it's not just truth mm. is unhinged. Truth becomes very important but you can't just have a blanket approach mm-hmm. um, to how how you read what's going on in any given situation. Mm-hmm. It calls for a, a kind of intelligence and compassion at the same time. And what's interesting is that um, Robert Sutherland, the one of the head neuroscientists in Lethbridge, uh, both times that he sat in on a class for me, um, he has really pushed my theology students um, in the area of compassion, because hmm. he just says you, when you meet a person, you actually have no idea what state their brain is in and what has brought them to the place that they're in when they have done such and such. Or, um, so it was very interesting coming from this, this very, um, you know, the scientific method King, um, him, him, he being the one pitching compassion to our group of young theologians. Mm-hmm. When I hear both of you, this understanding of belonging and not being put away is so key to healing, not being shoved out, but saying, even though you're going through that, this is going to be healing because you're close to me. And I like that to me sounds um, like an embodied faith, if I'm going to put it that way. Any last thoughts on the understanding of belonging and um, the importance of empathetic witnessing to someone else's life? Like that is something I've been thinking about quite a bit. Any last thoughts on that? I love that pastors are picking up this Mm. question because um, being attentive um, and cultivating the capacity in ourselves to be attentive to people who are come from a wide variety of experiences that can be completely unlike our own mm-hmm. um, is this is its own kind of skill that we don't realize in the Christian life that we actually need to practice. Like we actually need to cultivate this. Um, it's something that we work on kind of like building a muscle. Um, and um, Agnes, you can probably attest to this. One of the things that Christian theologians have uh, acknowledge at least the ones that I love. Wendy Farley is one of the great theologians of suffering. And she, as much as she writes about suffering, she writes about beauty. Mm-hmm. And she, um, she's gone through enormous suffering in her own life. And it has given her an eye um, for recognizing beauty, unlike any that I have seen in a modern theologian. Mm-hmm. And one of the thing, one of the observations that she um says is enigmatic is what what is strange to us is that even in experiences of radical suffering either by communities or by individuals um it's possible to also experience beauty at the same time and not to say that this is not saying that suffering is beautiful or that brokenness is beautiful or that woundedness is beautiful it's not that kind of a conflation but that people can develop this wicked sense of humor mm-hmm. or this kind of um, radical um, 
vulnerability to another person beside them who has experienced the same thing. That communities in the middle of a, a tragedy suddenly turn towards each other instead of bickering. And they're, you know, pushing each other's cars out of the snow and, and, and helping, helping neighbors. Um, these are the places that we see God, but we haven't always been trained to look for God in those places, um, in those beautiful aspects. And I think that that's a really important part of um, the belonging question of, of being able to recognize these, the, the beautiful people who are, who are, that beauty is not the domain of the healed or the, the perfect or the wealthy. It's not something you can buy. Um, it's something else. Um, and, and classic theologians have always associated beauty with God. Um, and so I'm sure it's folks like Agnes who have a million stories to tell about the, the beautiful people that they work with. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, Christina, thank you. I, um, mm -hmm. I, you know, on that idea of an empathetic witness, and I, I, I often go, go back to this, you know, the truth is, you know, my life is going to look very different than Sox and Jackie yours and Christina yours. We're, we're, you know, empathy is understanding. We're never going to fully understand people, mm -hmm. but the goal has to be to try and to create that space <laughs> so that one, people can try to understand themselves better um, and feel safe to try to understand themselves better. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, empathy is understanding and, and we need to really listen with our whole bodies to what somebody else is experiencing. And, and we need time for that. And Zach, I know you said it was too hard, but that's that's the truth of it. Earlier when we were saying it's, it, it's a lot of work um, to be able to do that. But I think it's incredible. And I have seen this over and over again, um, be so impactful. I, I thought Christina, just on everything you're saying, this is one of my favorite quotes and it's by Dr. Bruce Perry. Um, and it's in his book, um, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And he says, surprisingly, it is often when wandering through the emotional carnage left by the worst of humankind that we find the best of humanity as well. And I just got emotional there because the truth is, is, you know, that idea of the brokenness, um, that is where the healing happens when we can meet people within that brokenness. So. Mm -hmm. Our recording today has been done online from our homes. Music graciously provided by Jennifer Oikawa. Check out Escape Plan to Canada by the Jen Oikawa Trio. One thing we'd like to develop more of is a conversation with our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, find us on Instagram at the Podcast Made Flesh, no spaces, or on Facebook. Like our page and follow us. Get all our updates.